suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother J.S. to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Welcome to our 126th podcast, part five of The Man Whom Women loved. This part five of the episodic adventure of the wildlife and fashion photographer Peter Beard is a, is a series about a man who was both accomplished and nuts. And if not nuts, he was at least a bit crazy. And we're going to try to tell his story. But I can assure you that in this episode, and here I provide you with a spoiler alert, I'm going to veer off into some subjects that that might be viewed as, as extraneous to our protagonist and his life. But if you are beginning to understand the source material that made Peter Beard famous, infamous even, you will see, at least I hope, that these apparent diversions are not random in nature and that I have not lost the plot. They are an attempt to add color to the mystique that Africa holds. And, and it is my intention that these personal narratives demonstrate that anything that could happen might happen in Africa. And this was part of the allure for Peter Beard. Peter Beard's story cannot be told without a discussion of Africa, its wildlife, its you know, recklessness, accidents, and women, and lots of all of the above. But I, but I can only add to parts of the story, and I will. I've I've expanded the breadth of the story in ways that I hope you will find insightful and entertaining demonstrating the vagaries and unpredictable nature of human experience. And that by definition means that life is uncertainty. The sigma of things, not the mean of things. What makes life exciting is not what happens on the average, happens on the mean. It's what happens when life experience deviates from the expected that makes it all very, very interesting. And it's the variability from the mean of everyday experience that makes life so memorable. The truth of the matter is that life is a riddle wrapped in enigma, cloaked in mystery, such as was suggested to us so articulately so astutely, so memorably by Winston Churchill. He got that right. So please, a bit of patience. I need a bit more runway, uh, it might be said. And here, as we rollick through some idiosyncratic happenings that somehow depict the world um, in which lived our protagonist, a most enigmatic man, as it were, Peter Beard. 
So we left off in part four of our sojourn through Beard's life. Just at that point in time in the early 1960s where a young Peter Beard had become infatuated by the then old woman, the famous writer Isaac Dinesen, the Danish author of the classic Out of Africa, whom had written so longingly, so enchantingly of her wondrous days and nights and years, a life spent on her farm in colonial Kenya. And, and Beard was intrigued by Africa. He wanted to experience it, photograph it, write of it. And when you come from a wealthy family, as did Beard, one does not think of work. One just dreams of adventure because, well, because one can. You know, 60 years or so later, Jack Welch, the chairman of GE and, and, and voted the CEO of the century, by the way, learned this lesson the hard way, up close and personal, as it were, when he made the decision to set up a $50 million trust for each of his children to be paid out to them in two installments, as I remember. One, you know, half, 25 million at age 35 and the other half at age 45. When his children learned of all the money coming to them, it proved to be a game changer. One even dropped out of Harvard uh, grad school. Uh, why bother? Was the sentiment that, you know, the Welch children pursued their personal private interests. Their life experiences would never be the same. The trajectory of the course of their lives forever altered. Welch later admitted publicly it had, it had proven to be a tremendous, inalterable mistake to have left young children, young people, such wealth, no matter what his good intentions might have been. Now, Beard was not, you know, wealthy, at, you know, like Welsh's children, but but Beard had a trust that yielded him between fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year. And in 1961, this was nothing to sneeze at, and it gave Beard the freedom to knock around in pursuit of whatever he felt like doing. And and toward that end, one day he decided, why not? I want to meet the author of Out of Africa. You know, the Zen-like romance of the world that Isaac Dennison had written about appealed to the then unemployed but rich Peter Beard, whom tracked down the author in Denmark, visited and befriended Isaac Dennison. Isaac Dennison, nee Karen Blixen, was 76 year old at the time and very frail, very frail indeed. For more than 47 years, um, Dennison had suffered from the ill effects caused by syphilis that she had contracted from her husband and, and the, the toxic side effects of the diabolical medical quackery of the recommended treatments for this disease and the purport, purported cures for this dreaded and, and virulent disease. Regimens which included the likes uh, and outright horrors associated with mercury enemas and arsenic consumption. Oh, my God. You know, Dennison, Dennison loved spending time with her admirers and was well aware of Peter Beard's notorious 
good looks, and they shared an intense love of Africa, of Kenya, the wilds, the freedom um, felt in the veldt, the wildlife and the people, and the two bonded over these shared African interests. There's no doubt about it. And they also shared deep concerns over what they viewed as Africa's glorious lost past and their fears for its future. They loved colonial Africa. Denison, you know, Karen Blixen, weighed all of 70 pounds at the time she met Beard. And she, she persevered on a diet that consisted of oysters and champagne. No, despite her living, loving Africa, she was no carnivore. <laughs> and she was not a believer in the five food groups either. I don't know where oysters and champagne fall, but they did not satisfy dietary requirements. Her face was as dried and shriveled as papyrus. The skin pulled tight as a drum over um, her facial skeletal structure. You know, my, <laughs> I, I, I'm deviating, but I got to say, modern humans originated in Africa within like the past 200,000 years or so. And most anthropologists agree that humans evolved from our most likely recent um, common ancestor, Homo erectus man, an extinct species of human that lived like between 1.9 million and 135,000 years ago. I mean, this is quite a wide variety, variation, but that's what they tell us. But looking at, at Blixen's facial structure beneath her little, literally thin skin was proof enough the theory of modern man's evolution really did indeed hold water. And Blixen would die within a year of, of sharing her African adventure tales with Peter Beard, but she did provide him with a letter of introduction to a local Kenyan whom she knew and whom still lived on Blixen's coffee plantation just outside Nairobi. And Beard um, went to Kenya and, and thereafter he purchased for $135,000 a 45-acre um, patch of land adjacent to Blixen's plantation, which he christened hog ranch after all of the warthogs, which, you know, were all over the place. And it was to serve hog ranch as the artistic and romantic center of Peter Beard's mythical existence, one that he created out of the ether for himself and where he lived and entertained for much of the remainder of his life. You know, from hog ranch, Beard, um, uh, this was the scene of his greatest works. You know, the seminal Peter Beard photo was the 1987 photo entitled Night Feeder. You know, that photo of a naked uh, Maureen Gallagher feeding a giraffe. That was shot at Hog Farm. Now, <laughs> I must say, it, it might just be me, but it's Gallagher, Maureen Gallagher, not the giraffe that captures most of my attention. I'll never think of Africa in any other light, if you get my drift. Earlier, um, Beard had staged pictures of himself writing in his 
diaries, um, the lower half of his body encased within the insides of a crocodile. But let me tell you, less well-known was the fact that the crocodiles were conveniently either dead or anesthetized before Beard crawled in and positioned himself inside that crocodile. But um, that was not well-known because it didn't foster the narrative or the Beard myth as a wild man. Um, so in what I would say was a rather dubious, circuitous, but demonstrably um, accurate interconnection between um, Beard, Denison, my brother, and me, separated by only 11 years from the Night Feeder, I will present you now, I will introduce now, a sidebar story that, if nothing else, demonstrates the lack of predictability of life in the wilds of Africa. Sort of a who knew situation. It occurred when I invited one of my brothers uh, to again join me and my family on a safari across southern Africa. But first, let me articulate a bit about one of the oft repeated um, criticisms of Peter Beard, because I think it's relevant at this point. He, it is often reported, and and you know, and he that he had purported courage and bravery in the face of danger from wild animals in the African bush. And this was pure myth. It wasn't true. He was, he was simply purely reckless in action, irresponsible to the nth degree. Beard wasn't the man people thought him to be. In that regard, he was, you know, sort of a surprising sui generis character of a different nature than first understood. Not whom he seemed. Therefore, he, <laughs> I think it can be said, he was not unlike the character um, met in a bar in Soho that w the Kinks sang about in their famous 1970s hit song, Lola. No, Peter Beard was something else. Beard's blatant disregard for danger and his failure to you know, prudently beware of the risks that wild animals posed caused friends, acquaintances, and anybody else who knew him to believe that at some point in time, Peter Beard was going to inevitably, ineluctably lead innocent, trusting people he knew into serious trouble, putting them squarely into the crosshairs of harm's way when, when Beard guided them, and I put that in quotation marks, guided them on one of his ever uh, eventful, ever numerous walkabouts in the African bush, you know, as if he were in Manhattan's Central Park, which he wasn't. Of course, oh, then one day, one trusting friend following beside, remember, the courageous, brave, uh, sub, you know, Peter Beard, supposedly this experienced in the ways of wild animals, but in truth, reckless Peter Beard got gored by a rhino when Beard led him way, way too close to the rhino whom attacked him. Beard's friend was Beard, badly gored, and he suffered from life-threatening injuries and led a far-diminished existence for the remaining two decades of his life thereafter. He was that badly hurt. And the aggrieved 
rightfully angered friend blamed only one person, Peter Beard, for the attack, and he never forgave him for his negligence, for having trusted in Beard's claimed experience in the field and understanding of wild animals. And this flawed judgment got this man into such serious medical difficulty, and he never spoke a single word to Peter Beard again during the course of the remainder of his life. No doubt... Um, surprise, a bit of danger, and mystery is indeed a part of the allure of Africa. I, I've been on safari on a number of occasions, a number of, of previous um, occasions with my family, and, and whenever possible, um, I attempted to avoid Nairobi, Kenya. Whenever possible, as over a 12-year period of time. I'd seen Nairobi deteriorate. And it was my duty to keep my family safe. So we were going to avoid it. It, it. Nairobi had become ever more impoverished and ever more dangerous. And unlike Peter Beard, I was unwilling to expose my family or friends to problem, to danger. And, and avoiding Nairobi was to avoid the Kibera slum district, which had metastasized into the most poverty-stricken urban mass in all Africa, where sanitation, running water, electricity, was was it was all essentially non-existent in this Dante-esque hellhole portion of Nairobi. It was the largest slum in the world, and I say this with pathos, not with condemnation. People there were beyond desperate, beyond destitute. It was just a terrible existence. And as should be expected in, in these kind of conditions, crime was rampant and, and growing worse. The sad but unavoidable truth of the matter, a rational, logical choice, in my opinion, as a traveler with children, is just was just to avoid Nairobi whenever possible, if possible. Now, once, given our itinerary, this is all that introduction to this sidebar story I'm telling, on one occasion, we had to transit through Nairobi on our way to um, Vic Falls in Zimbabwe, and we had a day to kill, and I decided the best use of our time in Nairobi would be would entail avoiding the Nairobi city center completely, in toto. And instead, I had planned a visit um, for us to the old Karen Blixen coffee um, plantation that had been turned into a park and museum after her death by the Kenyan government. A wise plan, I would think. For, for, for reasons that will remain undisclosed because they're, they're really unimportant, once we were at the Blixen um, plantation, a number of my family members and me found ourselves literally standing on a large limb of a century-old beech tree. I, I know this is hard to explain, but we were literally up a tree. Now, the colloquial expression, 
up a tree dates in the English language back to the early 1800s and mean, means one finds himself to be in a very difficult situation. A, a modern um, example of this kind of up a tree scenario might be remembered from the heart-pounding horror scene in um, the 1978 movie, the film Midnight Express. If you remember when a young, um, terrified American student named Billy Hayes is caught at the airport in Istanbul, Turkey, with two kilos of hash strapped to his chest. Uh-oh. As he is pulled out of the boarding line to be strip searched by Turkish police, I think it is say is safe to say that Billy Hayes knew as we in the audience knew that Billy was up a tree. The expression up a tree, you know, can allude to a circumstance where a cornered animal such as a raccoon climbs a tree for refuge uh, because it's threatened by attackers, you know, um, which then surround the tree so it can't climb down. Hmm. It has no escape uh, option because it's up a tree. In the Istanbul airport with the security force all about him, Billy would be that raccoon. So that is what it means to be up a tree colloquially and in film. But it did not turn out, it did not need to turn out uh, for us as nefariously as it did. But that is the story. And at, at this point in the story about us being up a tree, we will end this episode. What happened to us when we were up a tree? is what we're going to talk about in our next episode of The Man Whom Women Love, Part 6. I got to say, even to this day, almost a quarter century later, after the event happened, I am still, I am still amazed at what took place. And I hope that you'll turn in to hear about um, more about something that should not and did not have to happen, but did. Hey, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in to part six of The Man Whom Women Loved. Hey, thanks. Have a good day, and bye-bye. Inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I've been Feel
front of me Two eyes that can't make you see It's the mind that paints all these pictures Like the mirage of the deserts I misread all the signals I never knew that I'd been lost I thought goes from way back in my past never knew how much it costs Just a drop of rain and a thunderstorm Another grain of sand on the beach A blade of grass on a mountain field Another car on a shower street Mistakes, just things that I've done I can tell and I've broken the heart Can she forgive me? Can she forget? Can she keep us from falling apart? I hope that she knows that I'm